Welcome to the podcast for the Tuesday morning Q&A with Boyd W. Shepard DDSJD. Each Tuesday morning Q&A podcast is an edited and shortened version of the previously held live Q&A Zoom session. On Tuesday mornings each week, join attorney Boyd Shepard for a one-hour Q&A call where you can ask Boyd questions. Then hear his detailed and knowledgeable responses to the legal concerns and business experiences of other dentists. For more information on how you can join in on the Q&A each Tuesday at 7 o'clock a.m., please go to LegalDental.com. Morning, everyone. Welcome to the Tuesday morning Q&A. Thank you for joining. I'm glad you're with us. Hope you're having a great day already, that you're having a great week. I hope your weekend was awesome and that you're looking forward to another great weekend. I hope everything's going well in your practice. And I really appreciate all of you joining in this morning, as well as all the other mornings that you are here. Thank you very much for making this happen and possible. So today, we're going to be discussing the five things to avoid when selling a dental practice. And as I decided on this topic for today, I fully understand and appreciate that there are many of you that have already been a seller, certainly perhaps a buyer of a dental practice, and that I am truly preaching to the choir. It may be interesting to just hear things from my perspective. I don't know that I'm going to offer anything new, but it should be at least good discussion. And we'll get started right away. So the first thing, which the second item in the five things to avoid when selling a practice is obviously not getting the value you deserve. And that may seem simple. Of course, if you're the seller, uh, you're going to absolutely do everything you can to get the best value or the most value you deserve for your practice. Once you've determined what the value of your practice is, are there going to be parts of the process that arise that have the risk of diminishing or lessening what it was that you were hoping to get for the practice? And that really starts with having a good team in the first place, uh, being realistic about what your practice is worth. I always say that you, as the seller, should be the number one decider of what that value is. You decide what you want to sell your practice for. You get professional advice, you arrive at a number, but it's based on a number that work has gone into to arrive at, and you are realistic about it. But in the end, you're the one that decides this is what I'm willing to sell the practice for. You should know the value of your practice, but getting the value you deserve in the sale process, there are going to be opposing representatives for the buyer that may be trying to negotiate a lesser price, right? So negotiation of the price in and of itself could be something that in the end knocks down the value of what it is that you're trying to achieve. Uh, certainly negotiation of the sale terms, the back and forth it could be that you net out less because there are certain terms that 
actually cost you money in the end by the time you get to closing? Is that something you anticipated? Are those items that you accounted for? Certainly for the buyer, a buyer should always do due diligence. You as the seller need to um, cooperate in that due diligence and have full disclosure of all of the items and all of the concerns and all of the aspects of your practice. Because by the time you get to the end, closing and post-closing, if there's anything that you didn't disclose, that could cost money as well in dealing with the post-closing issues that may arise because there weren't proper disclosures during the process. And then, as I said, and let me reemphasize, post-closing disputes, this is where having experienced team members can be very, very important, very, very helpful. If you can imagine myself representing doctors on both buyers and sellers over 25 plus years, that there have been post-closing issues that have arisen. And honestly, many of those that I've dealt with were sales that I was not a part of the representation during the actual transaction to begin with. And so these are disputes that arose. And now I'm being contacted as an attorney to help unwind that dispute post-closing. Now, I'm not saying that the dispute would not have arisen anyway. If I had participated, I would hope not. But all I know is, is that I've been a part of post-closing disputes. And the majority of those are disputes in sales in which I did not participate. That's just a, a side fact. But that perspective to offer that in each of those cases, I could look at the dispute that arose and say, wow, that should have been caught early on. That should have been something that could have been discussed. Now, my classic example of that, the story I always tell because it just lingered on for so long, and yet this particular case I'm about to tell you about had so much similarity with other cases that I encountered along the way. Uh, thereafter, there was a situation where the seller had works of art hanging in the practice as part of the practice decoration. And these were originals. These were not by the doctor or anybody in his family, but these were original works of art, artists that they had gone out and basically collected and curated there in the office. Very, very valuable. As part of that sale agreement, nothing was ever addressed as far as what the seller was taking with them post-closing, what was considered their property. I know that sounds amazingly short-sighted to all of you, but it's the type of situation I see happen over and over again, where there's this buyer-seller relationship where both sides are saying what the other side wants to hear, and it's all verbal. And in this case, of course, the seller is saying, yes, this is all original works of art. We've really enjoyed having it here in the practice as the decoration for our practice. And of course, it's all ours and we plan to take it with us post-closing. And the buyer just kind of nods and says, yes, it's so beautiful and it's 
it's this kind of positive feedback that's not really a confirmation. Okay, yes, you can take that with you, right? You see where this is going, right? <clears throat> and so post-closing, the buyer is unwilling to allow the seller to come in and remove any of this art. And there's no exhibit, there's no attachment to the sale document that delineates what the owner is being allowed to remove. And it wasn't just the art. There were a lot of personal items, collections of other items that were in the doctor's personal office that he wanted to remove as well. And the, the buyer wouldn't allow it. Well, of course, this turns into a huge dispute, you know, uh, which could have been addressed in the sale document and delineated items not for sale and all of the art and could have been listed and and you see why that story's the classic story that I tell in this regard it's it's the avoiding a post closing dispute over something that's really really simple and easy to address on the front end and it goes back to the first two um excuse me the first item on our list of five things to avoid when selling a practice is having an experienced team that knows what to look for and how to advise you through the process. And then also getting the value you deserve, because if you're not planning on a dispute and then all of a sudden there is a dispute, that's going to diminish your net in having to deal with that dispute post-closing. Item number three, five things you need to avoid when selling a dental practice, misunderstanding your practice's financials. Um, the point here being you need to have good financial records. This not only helps you to market the practice, but it will also ensure obtaining the truest and best value for the practice. It's all about when you're the seller, it's all about getting the best value for your practice. I'm currently working with some doctors that this is an issue Two partners who have a dental practice. There's the senior partner who started the practice. There's the junior partner. And I say junior only in time because they both, after 10 years of working together, are 50-50 owners of the practice. So I don't mean junior in the sense of uh, financially. I just mean it in the sense of time in the practice. Well, the doctor who started the practice, being older, being later in their career, they're wanting to retire. The younger doctor wants to stay, keep the practice going, bring on an associate, makes perfect sense. So now you go back to the partnership shareholder agreement and determine, okay, well, how do we divide this practice up? And that's the place that they are right now how do you divide this up and so getting to our point avoiding the misunderstanding of your practice's finances the younger doctor engaged a firm to do an audit of the past 10 years financials because they just wanted to know is there anything that we're missing or not capturing in how the practice has been run for 10 years? And sure enough, this firm that audited their practice 
found huge discrepancies where the older doctor was overpaid, they were careful to say, we don't have any evidence of fraud or mishandling of funds. It's just more accounting errors, if anything. And without pointing fingers and not knowing everything that there is to know about it, it's just at first glance. Uh, and when I first learned of this, I can't help but ask, how does the, how does either doctor not know the finances, the finances of their practice? How was there an audit done after 10 years? How is there not at least an annual audit uh, to know where they are annually? How does that, because, because the, the amount that had been overpaid to the senior doctor was so astronomical as compared to the younger doctor it was it was substantial and so how do you divide that how do you go back and recapture an amount that's already been been paid out is the retiring senior doctor willing to uh, take less when the terms of the shareholder partnership agreements say that he's entitled to 50-50? Is he willing to take less in order to reimburse for the amount that was paid out that was substantially more than should have been over a 10-year period? You see the discrepancy there? So it's it's understanding the financial records of your practice um, to, to ensure obtaining the best value for your practice. As a seller of your practice, Knowing where your practice is financially allows you to justify and support and stand firm on your asking price. When the buyer's representatives, the attorneys and CPAs start hammering on your team about, well, this is our offer and this is what we think the practice is worth, understanding your financial uh, records and having a complete handle on those uh, numbers. Uh, allows you to stand firm on what you believe is the correct value of your practice. A story and some practical advice on that. Something that I run into often is this number four on the five things you need to avoid when selling a dental practice, overlooking the office lease concerns. Now, as a seller, as an owner of a dental practice, you may own the real estate outright. You may own the building and the, the real estate, the property outright. And that's a whole other issue. Most dental practices, most practices that I've seen over the years, there is an office lease. It could either be in a building, it could be in an office front of some sort, but the typical arrangement for office space is the commercial lease. And so as the seller the question that I always have is for you, if you're contacting me, where are you in the lease? Is it a five-year lease? Is it a 10-year lease? And where are you in the lease? The minimum lease is, and I rarely see it, is three years. And I see that so little that I won't even talk about that. The typical lease is a minimum of five years, many times more, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I rarely see it. I rarely see a lease that's more than 10 years. All of that to say is that when you're going to sell your practice, that can be an issue for you as a seller. 
because it affects what the landlord is going to want to do relative to the buyer coming in and how financially strong your buyer is to be accepted by the landlord as the new tenant in your space. Do they have this, does your buyer have the financial strength to step into your shoes as either a new tenant under a new lease or on a lease assignment? And so the what you want to avoid, when I say avoid overlooking office lease concerns, as the seller, you don't want to wait until the last minute after you've found your buyer and you've gone through the entire process and now you're just now talking to the landlord and it's 30 days or less before closing. That is not the time to talk to the landlord. The time to talk to the landlord for your commercial space is probably one of the first things you want to do. You don't want to go to them and cause any alarms. You don't want to cause them any stress. You want to reassure them, hey, I'm not going anywhere until this thing is done right. But looking at the lease terms that I have, having an open communication with you as the landlord, where are we as far as what is your philosophy? What is your approach? What is your business approach for a situation where someone like yourself wants to sell your professional practice and there's the potential for a new tenant? And they will tell you, in all likelihood, that landlord has been there, done that. They understand the process. And it's going to come down to where you are in the lease. If you're at the front end of a lease, um, they're more than likely going to want to do a lease assignment. If you're on the back end of a lease term and it's the eighth year of a 10-year, the third of, you know, if you're three and a half to four years into a five-year lease, it just depends. <laughs> if the back end is shorter than the, the front, in all likelihood, they're going to want to get into a new lease with the new tenant. Does that affect you? Yes and no. Again, you're not going to be obligated under the lease any longer. And that's really ideal. That's what you want. You want your buyer to be an independent tenant under a completely new lease. You don't want a lease assignment if you can help it. Will you be able to do that every time? Probably not, because it's up to the landlord based on your commercial lease terms. That's why you don't want to wait till the last minute. Um, so you've got to get into the lease. You've got to have a communication relationship with your uh, landlord so that when this line item is crossed with your buyer, it's something that you're ready for. And then finally, on our fifth item of five things to avoid when you are selling your dental practice, it's the idea of having an exit strategy and making the decision whether to stay on after the sale or not. This is really going to be, I think, one of those issues that's all over the map. It's not, there's no right or wrong answer. It's what fits your situation. But having that exit strategy, knowing what it is you're going to do will allow you to prepare for and be ready for what I call post-closing relationships uh, with the doctor if you're going to stay or post-closing relationships with the office team if you're going to stay. 
obviously if it's turnkey, if it's a closing, if it's a sale and the the buyer takes over and the seller leaves and goes on vacation and, and retires, that's one thing. But it's really if you decide to stay on as a seller and now you're the new associate, the question becomes how long are you going to be an associate? Is it for the purpose of transitioning the goodwill of the practice? And that's the most common reason for a seller to stay on post-closing is so that there can be a transition of the goodwill, the patient relationships um, of the practice so that the buyer gets the most value for what they are paying for the purchase price. The goodwill is going to be the largest component uh, of the sale price, right? And so in order to ensure the greatest value for what they are paying for, they may say, hey, we'd love for you to stay on to ensure the smooth transition, the introduction of patients, the, the soft landing, if you will, for the uh, buyer so that they realize the maximum value of their purchase right and so that's why you would stay on but for you as the seller it may be that you need to stay on you want to stay employed you're willing to be an associate for more than a year be an associate for an extended period beyond a year yeah i see that um i think that most sellers, and, and again, it's it's there's such a variety of situations, there's no wrong answer. Some sellers say I stay on for six months, some for three months, some for nine months, sometimes a year, sometimes not at all. These are things that the buyer has to take into consideration. But today we're talking about the seller. Knowing what your exit strategy is so that you can disclose that on the front so that you find the right buyer, a buyer who's prepared for the exit strategy that you have in mind, again, will allow you to reduce post-closing disputes or problems and will allow you to be prepared and quite frankly, help assist in and ensure getting the best value for your practice. So with that, We've covered the five things to avoid when selling a dental practice. I'll just review the, the five real quick. Um, you don't want to go it alone without an experienced team. Certainly a CPA and, a, and, a, and an attorney need to be on your team. Making sure that you get the uh, value you deserve. So having everything that you need to deal with the opposing representatives to negotiate sale terms that ensures that you get the best value for your practice. You want to avoid any misunderstanding of your practice's finances. <clears throat> Knowing the financial condition of your practice is essential. Number four, overlooking uh, your office lease concerns, which we talked about, uh, making sure that you know the terms of your lease, where you are in the lease, and have a good relationship with your landlord. And then number your five on the three. exit strategy, deciding whether to stay on after the sale and knowing exactly what you're going to do 
uh, post-closing, <clears throat> if you're going to stay on as an employee or is it turnkey and you're out of there? So those are the five things you need to avoid when selling a dental practice. In the meantime, uh, you can go to the Q&A blog. There's the URL for that. That's where you can go back and look at the subject matters for other Q&As that we've had that date all the way back to May of this year. So there's a lot of information up there. I'll be posting today's as well, and we keep that up to date. I've given you in the chat the URL for the Google Drive. That's where we put all of the forms, the consent forms, legal forms, outlines, articles. And then finally, there is free CE available to you. Send me an email, boyd at legaldental.com with your full name and the way that it's spelled correctly to make sure I get it right. When I put it on your certificate, uh, there's 0.5 hours available in CE for each one of our Q&A times. So please uh, feel free to send me an email and say, Boyd, please make me and send me my certificate for today's Q&A. And with that in mind, I do need to sign off early. Thank you for being here. Have a great day. Have a great rest of your week. I look forward to seeing you next Tuesday. I can't thank you enough. Have a great day. Thank you again for listening to the podcast for the Tuesday morning Q&A with Attorney Boyd Shepard. For more information on how to join the weekly Q&A each Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. go to LegalDental.com. This voice was produced in Typecast, an artificial intelligence voice service.